Okay, Tyler, we're going to talk about um, zombies or the meaning crisis. And I think the two are probably, the two are related. So um, I think what we want to do in today's talk is sort of dive into the symbol of the zombie and see what, how that connects to our own experience and see what we can do from there. But yeah, that's what I want to discuss. Sounds good. You want <laughs> so, to kick it off? Yeah, so so you were saying you you, you watched the Verveke and um, Christopher video. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you want to go from there? Or? Yeah, so they're talking about, they had eight um, aspects, I guess you could call it, or characteristics of the zombie. Um, so I here's here's just a bit of a pushback mm -hmm. um i got from um burn power i don't know if you've seen him he's been on paul's channel yeah. he calls himself the uh, i don't know what he calls himself but um we were talking about the zombie and he said um you sort of you can sort of put your own bias into the zombie um by drawing out the aspects of the zombie that um that you think are important so if i if i watch zombie movies and then sort of string together the the symbol of the zombie it's sort of a it's sort of um going to reflect my salience landscape and the narrative i want to tell so it, that just puts puts maybe a bit of um critical edge on Verveke's um, notion of the zombie because you know like what aspects is he leaving out what aspects is he highlighting um, are there things he's just not pointing out I don't know well, also, I mean that objection isn't limited to the zombie you oh could, yeah you could make that objection to just about anything it's his entire project essentially like he's highlighting these aspects of the history of philosophy. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah. it, it's like, I don't, I don't see how that, but anyway, but the, I think their aspects of it are pretty canonical. I mean, that that's what they tried to do. They, I mean, they wrote, they're writing another book about it. So they're I, like, I, I agree. They're I mean, pretty, I, they're pretty, uh, now I guess what you read into those things is where I could see what Byrne is saying. It comes more, you know, it's kind of like a postmodern. Well, I guess, I guess the, the, the objection is this. So um, you're getting the symbol of the zombie from, uh, from the fact that it's appearing all over in popular culture. It's appearing in different films and different books and different uh, whatever. Um, and so there's this vast universe of zombie literature. Um, and how do you sort of narrow that down to get the zombie archetype? It, it seems like a tricky exercise, I guess. Um, I, maybe Peugeot would have an answer for us, but I don't know. <laughs> I think you just have to go with what the pattern is. That, you know, you go through it, and I'm taking their word for it. I've I've seen mm -hmm. a few zombie movies. You know, I've watched The Walking Dead and seen some other ones. So it's like they're all roughly 
Like, I think most people, if you said, what is a zombie, they give you the main. Yeah, I, the main. I, I like the, I like their outline as well. So yeah. let's jump um, into it. All right. So the, the eight were, what is it? They don't, uh, lack of speech, the perversion of communitas. So they, they kind of roam around in herds, but they're not actually in uh, community with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, and that goes along with the la- the la- they lack self-awareness. So then three is that they're untouchable. Their four is they're homeless. Five is they're insatiable. Six is the ugliness. So like the, the, they're actually like physically decaying. Seven is they are, they're amoral. So they, they're, they lack a, any notion of evil or good. And then eight is they are, they lack perspective. And so I think what, what Byrne is saying is right in that what you can then do is if you, you can then focus in on a few of these and then tell the story in a way that says the zombie is this. And so the classic one from probably two decades ago, or maybe three decades ago was number five, the insatiability. And they, people would map that on to consumerism. Oh. Hmm. And, and so, and I, I think that's a kind of a like facile explanation, like just yeah. to say like, Oh, this is, Oh yeah. Zombies. It, it's like, uh, what is it? It's like an allegory versus like Tolkien's applicability. So just to say, oh yeah, the zombie is the the uh, the modern day you know shopping mall patron, right? Like that that is a very that's a very I, weak. I think I um I see I I get what you're saying about how that's sort of a bit of a facile um, link. But I think there's something to it, but the analysis isn't deep enough. I would say there is this hunger and it gets manifested in consumerism, but the, the hunger is what's actually at the root of it. There's this yeah. sense of um, longing for something, this unsatiable desire for something. But um, it doesn't connect with the rest of the other aspects. And that's where I think Jonathan Peugeot would say, you know, no, that's not, you're not, you're not doing symbolism properly like he's like he's done the ones about the uh the swastika in in like the the old greek churches right and people go and they look and they're like oh my gosh look they were nazis and he's like no this is not like this is a very old symbol you don't just get to take it and then apply it out of context and that's what i feel like the shopping, the, the shopping consumer um, angle doesn't fit with any of the other aspects. Okay, so you're saying um, if we're going to, to, to analyze aspects of the zombie, it sort of needs to form a coherent whole, a coherent yes. mode of being. And that's a point Raviki and his co-person co, um, co also makes is, you the zombie isn't just sort of a description of something it's actually 
uh, mode of being. It's a pattern of behavior. It's, it's, it's sort of like um, a principality in power in yes. that way. It's something that, that possesses you um, and that, that you enact out. That, that it's a mode of thinking, a salience landscape. It's a way of seeing the world. It's a, it makes certain things pop out to you and it makes you act in certain ways. So, so yeah. one of the things I was thinking about while watching it was, so um, when you're watching, let's say, let's just take The Walking Dead because that's the most, you know, the, the famous current, yeah, most popular example. Uh, when you're and let's, let's specifically talk about it in terms of Netflix, right? Because that's an important element, I think. So because you're not, you don't have to wait for the next episode to come out a week later on television. So when you're watching The Walking Dead, you're identifying in the story with the, the heroes, the, the human characters of the story but you're embodying the zombie in, in the act of watching in the act of watching, especially when you're watching on Netflix where you can just binge episode after episode after episode. Huh. Uh, and so I, I just thought I was thinking about that when they're like, who, who are you? And, and then how can you, and then you also have this. So they talked okay. about in, with their aspects, the, the, um, the lack of perspective, like the zombie lacks perspective. And so in the modern day, like we think of other people, people that don't agree with you, you can think of them as the zombie. Like we need to, everyone is lacking in perspective. And so you get phrases like we need to raise awareness. We need to like, like everyone is in a stupor. They're just roaming around. They're not thinking there. And we need to, raise awareness and, and break them out uh, of this. And so you can, you can, there's all of these analogs to being the person who is like, you're so driven to your thing. And like, you can just always say that everyone else lacks perspective and that you're the, you're the person who's trying to save the world and, and bring everything right. And, and so like, that's where I think people then identify with the, the heroes but then they also lack their own perspective because they're also embodying the the zombie in their actual life uh and so that that was and then the the amoral part i found really interesting oh yeah i never i never thought about never thought about that but it's the same i think it applies the same way where you can you can take your position and then if you say that Every, you, you so like the 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 source of evil in the zombie mythos let's just say is not the zombie it's other people it's not the zombie it's other people um yeah, yeah. always have tensions with other groups but then you have a like is it is it evil or is it survival it, it brings in this whole like question of of evil versus survival because it, 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 I think it's just a worldview question if you break it down to 
uh, these are all just animals trying to survive, then, you know, an animal isn't evil for killing another animal. That's just what it does. And so if you, if the, the zombies are like this, this animal form of humans and they're not evil when they attack someone, but then are the humans evil? Or like if, if there's two groups and then it's like, okay, they have all these resources and we need those resources for survival. So do we, is it okay to just go kill them? And you know, in, in you could say yes, or you could say no. And it, it's like a, it's like a question that's posed to the viewer in watching the drama unfold because there is this sense that, Oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that, but you don't know, you know, it's like there's, but I think people, people operate under that assumption until then they have to. Okay. Stop recording for a sec. Yeah. Um, so you're sort of saying that zombie is essentially an enemy or, or do you think it's something worse than that even? Because if you think about the aspects of homelessness, ugly, um, insatiable, it seems like it's even sub animal in some, in some way it's, it's a corruption of, it's definitely a corruption of, of a human um, and a corruption of creation itself, I think. Um, it's maybe it's something like the natural world um, <laughs> devoid of, of any sense of purpose or meaning or logos or yeah, maybe it's sort of a naturalism without without any kind of coherence. It's just this ugly Darwinian struggle, but it, it seems to be even uglier than that. Yeah, I, I wouldn't even call it Darwinian. It, I think it's the if you take the the naturalist worldview all the way to the end and you just say, okay, this is, there, there's no, see, I, okay. Is there a, a goal of naturalism? I think a lot of people say it's mixed, right? Cause you could say, people will say life, life in and of itself is. Well, I guess it depends what, what kind of naturalism you take. I mean, there's some, um, with people like Verveke and the people at Rebel Wisdom, this stuff gets more complicated, I guess. Um, but uh, maybe if you have something like a Richard Dawkins naturalism in mind, that's doesn't really have an end point. Because I think it works better if there is an end point and then there's like for the zombie to invert it, where the the purpose is for the zombies to consume everything. And then that's it. There's just, there's just, um, so it's like, it then it changes from the, 
from life. The goal is no longer life, it's death. And I think Christopher, in this but video, it's, for another it's not one. Even, that's the thing. It's, it's not even death. It's, it's a life that's death. It, right? It's, yes, yes. If the zombies true. could die, everything would be better. But they, they just keep on existing in this ugly, empty, meaningless, um, horrifying world. So it's, I think, I think what one way of thinking about it is the, 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 a human life that's, yeah, the meaningless human life, essentially, where you, you want to die, but you can't, and you just keep on existing in this horrific state. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's use that to connect. We've talked about zombies and, and the, the narrative. So now let's connect it with the meaning crisis. We talked about um, before privately about the idea of the modern day person is like the zombie. Just <laughs> you. And then I think you, we talked about uh, like commuting, the, the idea of commuting versus communing. And mm -hmm. that you, you can, the, the, it's not the routine of modern life that makes the zombie, but it's the, the way that you, the conscious, the routine. Yeah. Like how present you are, how, how conscious, how intentional you are and, and that you can be, you can have this, you can have two people who do the same thing, right? They can, they can commute to work. They can go to the same office. They can eat lunch with the same people. They, and like that one of them can be, can sort of just imbue all of that with meaning and the other person can do it like a zombie. I want to push. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm not quite happy with that because it seems to me that the way modern life is set up just sort of exasperates everything. Just the the whole idea of the the concrete jungle, the cubicle corp, um, the cubicle corporate life, the microwave dinners, the um, abstracted out of existence McDonald's, the the gate, the the endless consumerism of Walmart. Just this this sort of hollowed out existence sort of creates a, a liturgy for the zombie where it's, it's like you participate in this life and this sort of exasperates this sense of alienation and meaninglessness and um, disconnection. Um, so I, I guess you could do a do sort of a consciousness shift and then maybe see things in a, I get what you're saying. It's it's too, let's say, uh, Petersonian to just assume that somebody can do it all themselves and, mm -hmm. and break because you're you're sort of you're you're in the situation that you're in, and and even if you try to be that person, if you're surrounded by other people who are not interested in doing that, that you're still kind of stuck, right? You can become an island. Uh, and to say, oh, it's just how you 
how you approach it is not, not, it's too simple. Well, I, I was um, listening to, uh, to someone talk about, uh, I can't pronounce it, Jacques Alul. Jacques Alul, the technological society. And he makes the point there that what, 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 the, what, what our technological society does is it sort of pushes us to our absolute limits where you're sort of pushed to the brink of despair, but then it covers it up with sort of this, these layers of consumerism and um, these other, you know, um, therapy and these types of things to sort of placate you and make you sort of fit into this mechanized system. And we have this refrain from people where we'll say things like, um, you know, we'll ask, why isn't that person able to deal with normal life? And it makes the point, dealing with normal life is just a much greater task than it used to be because you have to deal with all of these um, alienating, dehumanizing aspects, I guess. Um, so that's an interesting way of thinking about it. So there's like way more pressure being exerted on a normal human being so that he's just at the brink of, of um, falling into depression and meaninglessness and these types of things. And then there's, there's sort of the system also creates sort of ways of addressing that and making people feel as if it's normal, um, distracting them and these types of things. Right. Like the, the reason businesses like Netflix and in the previous, let's say in the nineties or the eighties, you had the shopping mall, the massive shopping mall. And then you have the smartphone and you have Netflix and like these things, the, the, as the, the pressure and the, for, the, those, those alienating forces become more and more felt and more constant then the outlet from them has to be available. You have to have access mm-hmm. to that outlet at all times, really. Yeah. And really that gives people it. a sense of, of calm, not even accessing it, but just knowing that they always have access to it. If they're, if they're bored or they're stressed or they can all, like, even, even when we think about, you know, the, we talk positively about podcasts and, and being able to listen while you're in the car, mm-hmm. while you're washing dishes or doing laundry. But does that also like just knowing that you have access to that, it yeah. does comfort you in a way and make you I, feel like, oh, I can handle the, these, these, um, I, I actually mundane aspects of life because I have my, I have my Vander Clay in my ears. Yeah. Yeah. He's like the soothing voice. in our, in our <laughs> <trips. laughs> But I, I do suspect that podcasts are actually playing exactly the same role. Something like um, Netflix or, you know, Spotify or whatever it is, is, is doing for other people. And I think it's maybe like uh, sort of the same placating force 
for more intellectually attuned people where you have this illusion of thought. You have this illusion of thought, but what you're really just doing is ingesting other people's ideas. And and I I want to put a cynical twist on it. I, 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 I'm uncomfortable with the assumption that listening to podcasts is an activity of higher intellect than watching Netflix or like, oh, yeah, it's, it's all about what you're, because it, there's tons of pod, there's millions of podcasts and you have no idea. And people are listening to all types of things. And, and you can, you can, um, watch movies and, and, and make it a very thoughtful exercise. Exactly. Exactly. You can watch television in a very thoughtful, uh, sort of exploratory way. Mm-hmm. And so I don't, I don't want to demean that because, and that is, is something that I think just, it, it's kind of like a trendy to listen to podcasts. So, so people will say, oh, I'm, I was listening. They don't tell you what they were actually listening to. They just tell you that they were listening to their podcast and they heard something, right? So you have no context as far. You don't know what it is. But people have this thought that, like, listening to a podcast, that's, like, what reading the paper used to be. <laughs> yeah. Like, I want to I point out the very um, – what is the word for – for this conversation, there's sort of a very um, egotistical edge to it because we're sort of assuming we have the, um, we're like from above looking down at all of these, um, um, all of these earthlings who, <laughs> who are sort of uh, placating their, their meaninglessness with, with mindless entertainment. But well, I mean, I, I'll, confess that i do all of these things yeah (laughs) i have no problem problem with that that's how i know that's how i know that people that people are doing this because Mm -hmm. i do it my friends do it my family members do it It, it, it's like everybody does it and i don't think it's like the question that we talked about with social media like social media it wasn't like it was the the combination of the demand for it and the technology becoming available for it. Like if people didn't like social media, it wouldn't, it wouldn't matter. The only reason social media is like a problem is because people, the, the demand was there for it. People, what do you mean by, by like that? Huh? What do you mean by like, um, do people like, um, sprinkly donuts do people like um ketchup chips do people like um alcohol do people like cocaine do people like um you you get the drift i mean uh, i don't know if 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 people are 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 sort of thinking rationally and saying you know what i need is um, okay yeah i'm saying access to all people around the globe 24 7 at my fingertips and also pictures of cats and coffee every morning that's what i need (laughs) give it to me technology it could be the same the same uh sort of demand for distraction as Mm -hmm. podcasts and netflix provide but i think there's also the as you as you lose your the the felt sense 
of being acknowledged, like like the it's what is it like the urban solitude, right? Like everyone lives closely packed together, but they never come in contact with other people. Mm -hmm. So then it creates the same way that the all the constant pressure and stressors create this this demand for a constant outlet for that. You have this constant feeling of invisibility that then online you can now be visible and you can you can you can and it's and there's that as the comfort with in-person interaction decreases then you also crave the safety of anonymous virtual interaction mm -hmm. and, and you can you can just step out and so you start create your your you start fracturing your psyche into these personas where you have your online persona and then you have your in-person one yeah. and, and i'm just saying that if people were not feeling isolated and bored and all of these all of these things lonely yeah nobody would care about social media if everybody had this great community and they could go and they had all they had their life was full then you wouldn't go on you nobody would need facebook right you you would say why do i need why do i need to be friends with someone across the world when i have friends right here right like like the yeah, town wouldn't would i don't think social media takes i think it's small half town. true and half not true um because people still like sprinkly donuts even if they have a lot of food to eat true right um so I think I think there's the aspect of social media sucking people in, and also the aspect of it addressing a need that that is felt. So there's both, I think, for sure. But that's that's an interesting thought that um, these these sort of technologies are filling filling the gaps filled by you know maybe we should get into what we mean when we say um, modern society is alienating and and all these types of things. Well, okay. So the just to connect the the social media thing with the zombie, like alone together. The there, you're also in the same way that when you are binging Netflix, you're embodying the zombie. When you're scrolling through Instagram or Facebook or YouTube, you're also embodying the zombie. I mean, it's literally called a feed and you just are consuming all of these, all of this content. And in the same way as like the movie, it, it's, what are you doing with that? Are, are you doing it mindlessly? Are, are you is it just on autoplay and it just goes to the next one and you're just consuming all of this material but there's no it's amoral in that sense because there's no nourishment there 
Yeah, yeah. It's like the junk. It's all junk food, right? It doesn't matter what you're listening to. Like you can listen to lecture. You can listen to Paul. You can listen to Jordan Peterson lectures. You can listen to John Ravakey. If mm-hmm. you're, if it's just playing, like you're not you're not benefiting from that. It's just noise. And I I, I I'll confess to doing this too. Like I will notice at times where I'm listening to something, but I'm not actually listening. Like, and sometimes I, when you're you're in this horrible mood and you just don't want to spend any time in your thoughts so just queue up some Paul Vander play. And right. But then you're not have. even you're not even engaging with the material. You're just you're just zoning out. Yeah. Because now there's something and you're you're telling yourself, Oh, I'm listening to this. But there'll be times when I'll just be like, Oh, I I have no idea what was said in the last ten minutes. And That's then it. I'll go and then I'll go back. <laughs> and try to listen. But there are some times where I just realize, okay, no, like I, I'm not actually, this is not benefiting me in any way. So I'll just stop, just mm-hmm. turn it off and, and try to find something else to do. I find reading, it helps, but I, I, I'll catch myself reading and doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. You get the end of the page and then you're like, I have no idea what I just read up there. So, yeah. 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 So it's like uh, the, it's not a, I think it's a universal problem uh, that it's more about just being aware of your own capability of, of falling into that. There's, there's a few different ways of interpreting that. For me, I mean, one is our, you know, if, when you spend too much time consuming all day, is that the reason why when you sort of experience this because you're sort of, you, you want a space to process your thoughts, but you're not giving yourself that time. So it sort of starts happening while you're consuming. Another take would be just, um, we have decreased attention spans maybe from all our online grazing. And so when you're reading the book, you can't focus on what's happening on the page you're tied up with your own thoughts. Um, there's a, there's, I don't know which, maybe it's both. Yeah. Um, the, the best thing I found for that, or when I notice it the most really is when it's like a sign of overload. Mm-hmm. Like, like where you're, you're just, you're just tapped out. Yeah. Like yeah. You, need, you need to just stop. And because of the constant access, we think of it as being normal, but like nobody, people don't, most people don't read a book, like sit down and read a book for like three hours or eight hours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but people do that with YouTube and podcasts. Yep. Yeah. Right. And so we have this assumption, like if you told someone like, Oh yeah, I read for eight hours. I read for eight hours every single day. (laughs) They would would be like, well, are you a graduate student? Like what's, what do you do? Or are you five? When I was five, I probably did that. Yeah. Like that's not not normal (laughs) to say that. But if you told someone, Oh yeah, I listen to, to, to podcasts for eight hours every day at work. People would be like, they wouldn't bat an eye at that. 
Oh, they would, but, but, but yeah. They, they would say, oh, what do you do? Be like, oh, I'm a software engineer. And they'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, whatever. That, that seems reasonable, I guess. <laughs> it, uh, yeah, I've thought. But, I've but can you really, can you really be listening and, and absorbing that much? I, I, I doubt it, right? You know, it's why it would make more sense. If someone said I listen to music while I work for eight hours, you would, you would find that less odd than listening to podcasts because there's a music has a, it's not just the, you're not just listening to the words. You're feeling the music at the same time. And so it do, it's not the same as someone speaking. The whole phenomenon though is just so strange. I mean, take the stereotype of the, you know, the, this, the, the 40s or whatever factory worker who sort of trudges off to his, uh, to his job stacking things that come out of the assembly line and then he, he works his shift, he eats his meal, then he, he trudges back home and sits down in front of the TV to distract himself. You know, we sort of were talking about the perils of modern life. What, what's happened now is you have the same factory worker who's trudging off to work, but the whole time he's listening to podcasts or listening to music. Um, what's going on with that? And then he goes home and then he watches some TV or maybe, or watches some Netflix and then he goes to sleep and then he wakes up and puts his earbuds in and then goes back, you know, that's the extreme case, but that's essentially what's going on. What's, what's up with that? There could be some uh, chronological snobbery where we, that's C.S. Lewis's term, I'm pretty sure. Where we, where, no, where we look, we look back at the factory worker and go, oh, man, like, that seems terrible, so boring. So, but, I mean... I'm not saying, I'm just saying there's heightened levels of distraction going on in the second case today. Yeah, yeah. But to say, to say that the reason he wants to listen to podcasts is because his job is so boring. Does that make sense? Like that we're, we don't know what it was. Because if you came from, if you lived, through the Great Depression on a farm. Well, you might think going to the factory every day is pretty nice compared to sure. Compared to what you had to do as a kid or what you saw your parents do. And then you might think, wow, this TV is way better than the radio that my parents used to just play constantly with its like two stations or whatever, right? So I don't know that we can say like people are the technology affords more simultaneous consumption. Like you can, you can work because you have headphones and things, but at the Mm -hmm. same time, were people at factories, were they playing music during like, did they have other things going like, you know, you could listen to the radio or you could, now you can watch TV and now you can listen to podcasts. Like 
the medium is changing, but I don't know that the approach is changing other than the instant access that you have now. Uh, and so, um, well, it's definitely more immersive, for example, like a, a, a movie just sucks you in and lets you participate in the story in a, a much more powerful way than a book probably can. Um, just because of the way the images and the music are so directly um, within your experience. So, I mean, there's, there's obviously a positive aspect to that, right? Where you're, it might even be, could even argue it's a more powerful art form because you can just communicate way more in that way. Limited, of course, by the fact that it's two hours versus 500 pages, but you could have Netflix series maybe. Um, so that, so it's, it's more immersive. Another difference is, you know, the difference between a movie and radio. Another difference is, like you said, the instant access, though I would add um, 24-7 consumption is possible in a way it wasn't before. Yeah. And I think the, the biggest change is not in, it's in the, the freedom of choice and how that leads to isolation. So that's, I think one of the biggest, like we talked about the, the alienating forces of modern, of modern life. So if you have a small town movie theater or a few national radio stations that everybody listens to, everybody sees the same movies or everybody watches the same few television channels, mm -hmm. then everyone is sharing in the same narratives. Yep. 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 But as those, as yeah. those proliferate, as those technologies proliferate, then you get more and more choice. And so that leads into fracturing of, mm -hmm. oh, you know, you now, what is it? Like the United States has like 350 million people. So you can create a successful podcast by, you can, you can be one of the most successful podcasts ever by getting 1% of all the people in the United States to listen to you, 1%. Whereas you had these, a few movies that, you know, everybody would go see. Everybody would go, would, would watch the, the few news programs. Everybody who watches movies, I guess. Right, right. But, you, but as a percentage, you were, you were sharing that experience with, a much larger percentage. Whereas if you just took a podcast that people take a podcast you listen to, go ask somebody if they've ever heard of that podcast. Odds are they're going to say no. Paul Vanderclay. <laughs> right? Maybe it's really like, what do you, way, you can find way more popular ones than that, that people will have no idea what you're talking about. Even people who listen to podcasts will say, I've never heard of that. And, and so there's, there's this fracturing of the society that happens as, as you get more and more. And so that's what I think the biggest difference is 
with the factory worker go like that you could have all if if you had all all these people listening to the same things then or or related things then it would aid cohesion and it mm-hmm. would you would have a better i think work culture but if everybody can just come into work and listen to whatever they want yeah then you are going to everyone is it's like a they have a defense mechanism to whatever the culture at whatever the you know the top down what the the expectation of what the culture yes. is going to be i was, I was just mm-hmm. okay wait we're gonna have to cut it short but i was i was just gonna say um this actually this phenomenon of freedom of choice um which again cocaine and 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 sugary donuts but <laughs> but um this 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 freedom of choice thing sort of cuts against i think the uh, allure um technocratic society tech, technological society thing because you know if you sort of take this view that that modernity is alienating and then we need sort of technology or, or entertainment to to sort of um, protect us against that source of alienation. Um, what, what, this all, what all this alternative media and this fracturing of the sort of dominant narrative does is it, it sort of creates these pockets of resistance um, and it, it sort of makes it more hard, more difficult to sort of keep this coherent system um, of society together in this sort of, right, in this, in this, you know, we, we want to have um, standardized tests and we want everyone to sort of fit the mold. That sort of starts to break down with, with, with the internet and these types of things um, because you have all of these alternative points of view and this fracturing and these alternative lifestyles. Um, yeah, hard to know how that plays out because then you have big tech companies starting up and yeah. who knows where it, where it all, where it all, where it all heads. Well, I think there's to, to close that, that gets into uh, Jordan Greenhall talks about the big differences that you have broadcast and then you have digital. And so you, when you have the, the digital affords a, or sorry, the broadcast affords a top down control, but also it provides cohesion because now everyone is, is getting the same thing. Mm-hmm. But then as, as there become more and more broadcasts, then people can start to pick between the different broadcasts and that opens the door to digital, to decentralizing. Because now once, every, once enough people have the ability to broadcast, then you, you, it fractures the whole, the whole thing. And then now everyone is everyone can can self select. I think um, I think in the early days of Silicon Valley and the internet, there was actually exactly this type of sense going on where, oh, the internet is just going to create this hierarchy-free system where everyone with decentralization and the was literally these utopian hopes through the internet. And what ended ended up happening is. The internet gets controlled by Google, by Amazon, by Facebook, by these big corporations. 
and you see just tribalism start to develop. Yeah, I think that's what ha- so that's what's happening with YouTube, especially right now, is you you set it up right like you you have broadcast and then the technology proliferates and then you get YouTube coming in saying hey anybody can broadcast on YouTube and so people just think it's going to keep progressing like this but no it swings back because then YouTube outcompetes everybody and then they say hey wait a second we need control now we we value control more than the the decentralization and so what started as a, a platform to to offer broadcast uh, to everyone the ability to broadcast to everyone now becomes the same platform that now they're like oh we're in control like we we want to we want to control and so now they're setting up all these new requirements for ads and and who they're going to promote and what's considered like verified channels and they're they're making all these changes because they're trying to lock it down because they've won and it's like peter Thiel has a great a great line uh, talking about this where he says a a true capitalist is anti-free market yeah because as soon as you get in like you want the market to be open until you dominate the market and then, and then you don't like that's, that's what a capitalist wants to do. And so, but people have this, this conflation of capitalism and free markets, but that's, that's not what's going on. And so I think that's the same way that YouTube is. It's a perfect analogy for what YouTube is doing. They, they opened it up, they won and now they want to close it down because they won. And, and, and so, and they're actually partnering. They're partnering with the people that they that they undercut to begin with, right? Which is keep the profits going. Which just proves, right? Because they're the old kings of broadcast. And so, if you're trying to set up a broadcast hierarchy, well, you, they had to undercut them so that they could knock them down. And then now that YouTube is on top, now they're perfectly happy to realign the hierarchy along broadcast and so that's and that's what they're doing and, and so the the idea that technology is just going to to uh empower everyone is that it's a it's a utopian pipe dream. pipe dream yeah yeah okay let's put this out there and see what people think sounds